Amen. Thank you, Cindy. It is good to be together. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is our seventh week in our series on the way of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking into the way of joy. But before we do that, I just want to ask you to continue in prayer with me, and let's ask God to bless us with the gift of His Spirit as we look to His Word and ask for Him to speak that word that each of us need to hear for ourselves today. Would you pray with me as our kids go? God, we do thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but you are a God who speaks. And as we continue to look to your word and on this Memorial Day weekend when we remember and we honor all those who have paid the ultimate price to not only win, but also to protect the freedom that we have, to worship you this morning, we celebrate that their sacrifice points us back to your teaching in our lives, that greater love has no one than this, than that they lay down their lives for their friends. And so, God, we ask that their example for us and their gift of the ultimate sacrifice for us would lead us to have courage and strength to go from this place today, to sacrifice our lives for the needs of the lost and the hurting and those that you would call us to serve as we seek to live in the way of Jesus as his true disciples. So continue to bless us and speak to us and grant us the gift on this Pentecost Sunday of your Holy Spirit to be a fire at work within us, giving us a passion and an inspiration to be new each day in our relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so this morning, as I said, we're talking about the way of joy. And if you are familiar with the Bible at all, you know that in many and various ways, the Bible talks a lot about joy. But I also want to suggest for us this morning that joy often seems to be one of those super elusive things that we know exists, that sometimes we get a taste of, but often is something that we are hoping that we will experience again. Typically, the opposite of joy is the word sorrow, right? We have joy and we have sorrow. And in order to better understand joy today, I want to talk a little bit more about understanding sorrow. The dictionary defines sorrow using a variety of other words. So in the dictionary, it says sorrow is distress caused by loss, loneliness, affliction, disappointment, grief, sadness, or regret. Now look at the list of those words, right? Looking at those words, couldn't we say that each one of us lives with one degree or another of sorrow in our lives. Another dictionary says, sorrow is the most general term. Grief is keen suffering, especially for a particular reason, while the word distress implies anxiety or suffering caused by pressure of trouble or adversity. Misery suggests that such a great and unremitting pain of body or mind so as to crush the spirit. So there are degrees of sorrow. But in a general sense, I am suggesting for us today that all of us who suffer under the human condition of living in a broken and a hurting world carry with us every day, whether we admit it or not, some measure of sorrow in our lives. And in a general sense, then, we are all living and carrying pain in life. And I'd also like to suggest that we are all 
uh, victims of a psychological and an emotional trauma that we've experienced from all of the brokenness that we live with in this world. And none of our lives have been perfect. And we've all experienced the sin and the evil of what other people have done to us, as well as those mistakes and those places where we've fallen short and done things to other people. And so it's this pain that we carry within us, I want to suggest for us today, that most often is the very thing that robs us of the joy that the Bible says is available to us in Jesus. In fact, more and more social science research is bearing out that all of the addictive behaviors in our lives, whether it be alcohol or some other substance abuse, or all of our, uh, what they call our addictive behaviors, or our behavioral addictions, like overworking, overeating, right? Continual shopping, and now that we can shop online, you have you know, the mall is on your phone. <laughs> Binge watching television. Even, they say, much of the intensity around following the latest news cycle in the politics in our culture are all a part of the addictive behaviors that we fall entrapped, we become entrapped to. All of them are a form of escape behaviors in our lives and are most deeply connected to the desire to alleviate pain. And the greater the pain or the sorrow that we carry, they suggest, the greater the risk and intensity of the kinds of addictive behaviors that we give ourselves to. That's why we are discovering addictive behaviors are so hard to change, not just for those who are addicted to a substance, but even when we come to church and we know that we're not living the best life that God would have for us, and we know that we're giving into choices and behaviors that aren't necessarily what God would have us do, the challenge of changing those behaviors and experiencing the transformation of life that the Bible says is available is so hard because those Patterns of behavior have become ingrained in how we live our life because those are the coping mechanisms by which we've learned to survive in this dark and this evil world. Addictive behaviors are so hard to overchange and overcome because at a deeper psychological and emotional, and can we even say at a spiritual level, they perform the positive function of relieving pain even if it's just for a moment. But see, that's where the problem comes in, right? All of these fixes are temporary. Yes, they give us a, a momentary relief of the pain that we carry or the sorrow, but, but over time, those problems come back, right? The, it doesn't make the sorrow go away. It doesn't bring healing. It just masks it for a season. And so we get into these vicious cycles where these patterns of behavior keep us from the best that God has for us and often can get worse and worse and worse. And so today, as we talk about the topic of joy, I want to suggest that any addictive behavior that we pursue, and if you haven't gotten the point already, we all have them. (laughs) All of these examples are counterfeit joy. It's counterfeit joy. 
If the opposite of joy is sorrow, and if sorrow is the pain that is caused by loss or loneliness or affliction or disappointment or grief or sadness or regret, then conversely, the opposite of sorrow is joy. And genuine joy comes not from alleviating our pain, but from healing it altogether. Let me say that again. Joy comes not from alleviating our pain in a temporary way, but it comes from healing it altogether. And that is the promise that Jesus gives us in the good news of his gospel, of why he gave his life to bring us back to God, to bring his healing and to restore us to wholeness so that we could experience the joy of life that comes only from him. So what does this have to do with the way of Jesus in our parable for today? Well, in the Bible, joy is most often associated with feasting and celebration, right? Don't we all like a good party? As human beings, aren't we kind of hardwired for feasting and celebration? I've always said for years and years, food is the grease of ministry, <laughs> One Sabbath day, Jesus had him divided over for dinner to the home of a leading Pharisee, and the house was filled with the Pharisees' socially prominent guests who were all experts in the law, and they were there to examine Jesus. And at this, at this dinner, Jesus sees a man who is suffering from uh, dropsy, the Bible says, or what we know now is the, the illness of edema, which is a swelling of the skin that often comes from either congestive heart failure or a problem with other organs in our bodies and is a sign. Of, of a deeper form of illness. And he asked them, because it's a Sabbath, is it appropriate, is it legal, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And these experts in the law don't know what to say, and so they're silent. And so in their silence, Jesus goes ahead and heals the guy. And then he also comments on the social climbing proclivities of these religious leaders and these guests at the dinner who always seem to come and take the best seats at the table before anyone else can get there in order to raise their own status in the community. And if you know anything about the ancient tables that were often in a U shape where the host would sit at the center of the curve, then the prominent seats were on the right and the left and everyone would be uh, demoted outward from there to the ends of the table. But in contrast, Jesus says that those who serve others first and who go to a lower place and wait to be invited to a, a place of honor will be repaid, he says, at the resurrection of the righteous. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, but when you give a banquet, when you throw a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And this term, the resurrection of the righteous, and the, uh, th this hope uh, of how God in the end is going to put all things back together, and the kingdom of God is going to come, and in that day we know that, that everything's going to be made perfect. At the mention of the resurrection, one of these uh, religious leaders takes his cue to try and break the tension in the room, Right? and to redirect the conversation. And so in verse 14, he says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Which prompts Jesus then to tell another parable of the great banquet feast, which is our parable for today. To which many people are invited, but many risk 
not ever making it to the table. In verse 16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master, and then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, there is some Old Testament background for this parable. As I said, throughout the Bible, there's a lot of uh, explanations of how the kingdom of God is like a banquet feast or like a meal, and that the fulfillment of God's promise would be like experiencing an invitation to a party. Psalm 107, 8 and 9 says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. Or Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9 say, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. Isn't this a party you want to go to? (laughs) On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away their tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You see, the joy that overcomes the sorrow in God's people is the presence of the banquet feast of the kingdom of God. Now, we might also recall that Jesus' very first miracle happened where? At a wedding feast, right? He turned water into wine to keep the party going. And we also can look to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, and we can see at the end of time, uh, the, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of time, God is wanting us to understand that his invitation into a relationship with him and an entrance into the kingdom of God should feel like you're going to a party. Here in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 14, the fact that the invited guests, one by one, all find excuses to not come to the banquet puts the host in a bit of a dilemma. 
Does he postpone or cancel the party even though the food is all ready and waiting for the guests to come? Or does he go ahead with his plans? The Greek phrase used here is apomias pantes, which means from the first all. So even though Jesus only gives three examples of the excuses that guests gave to not come to the party, the, the implication is that all of those who were originally invited to the party, all of them bailed. None of them showed up. And the excuses that they gave were, were kind of lame excuses, right? The clear implication is that these guests have all said that they were going to come to the party. They've all RSVP'd. They had all planned to be there. That's why the host prepared the meal. That's why he got the party ready. But now they're all backing out at the last minute. He's already done the work, slaughtered the meat, prepared the feast. He says, all is now ready. But one by one, each guest comes up with a rationalization for why they can't come. That these are all excuses suggests that the reasons were not legitimate reasons, but rather something to give the appearance of something more important. Right? For example, if you're buying a property, wouldn't you go and expect it before you buy it? <laughs> And when we buy a house, we, we hire an inspector to go from top to bottom to look it over to make sure that it's something that we want to invest our money in, right? You don't buy it sight unseen and then go check it out. Or if you were buying five oxen to plow your fields, wouldn't you go try them out before you bought them? Wouldn't you want to give them a test drive? It's suggested that one denarius was considered one day's wage for a common soldier. So it's kind of a, maybe an average salary that we might predict in, in Jesus' day. And an ox sold for an average of 100 denarii. So five oxen would be 500 denarii. So you can do the math, right? 500 denarii, if one denarii is one day's wage, you're talking about a year and a half's worth of wages to buy five oxen. Now, if you're going to go out and buy a John Deere tractor to plow your field for $150,000, don't you think you'd want to try it out first? I know I would. And so, if you're getting married and planning time for a honeymoon away, and you've planned this on the calendar, and you've done this, we plan weddings months, sometimes even years in advance. Are you going to RSVP for a dinner party right in the middle of your honeymoon? Come on, you never would have even said yes that you were going to come. And so all of these excuses, Jesus said, are rationalizations to try and make it sound like there's something more important when the reality is they just don't really want to go. Yet rather than wasting what has been prepared, the master sends his servants to go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, which represent those people who wouldn't typically be invited to a banquet like this. And these are the people who are living every day with pain and with sorrow. They're the very people for whom the kingdom of God has come. But we don't identify with those people we don't really need what the kingdom of God's provided us because we have fields and we have tractors and we have families and we have things to do and we have things to keep us busy. So thank you, God, for the invitation, but we're good. Even with this extended invitation, he says there's still more room. You still have to go out. Go outside the city. Go outside the walls. Go out on the highway and flag people down and say, hey, there's a party that you don't want to miss. Come and check it out. 
So the servants are sent out to the highways and the hedges, and they're instructed to compel people to come in. It doesn't mean force them. It means like, you know, sell it. Make them understand why they don't want to miss this party. In fact, these people may not even know the host of the party, but nonetheless, the host wants his servants to encourage them to come and join in the feast because the master intends to have his party filled. Within the theme of the great banquet feast of the kingdom of God, Jesus is identifying two core issues for us that we can identify with if we are seeking to allow the character of God to be formed in us as we pursue the way of Jesus in our own lives. And those two key core issues are the issues of humility and generosity. When the master issues an invitation to come and sit at the divine table of welcome and healing and forgiveness, it takes a humble heart to admit that you're a person who actually needs forgiveness and healing. And it takes a generous spirit to then be willing to to welcome others to the table and to not take the most prominent seat, but to step aside to make room for others to come and experience the gift of being invited to the party as well. And so Jesus also warns us here that there will be many things in life that seem to be more urgent and important than responding to the master's invitation. But he's also hoping that we'll see that these are only excuses for not responding. And while these things may feel urgent and they may feel important in the moment, they may lead us away from experiencing the joy of the feast that God has wanted to provide for each one of us. So to come to the table means to accept this invitation of God, to embrace this good news message of Jesus Christ, that salvation and healing and wholeness and the joy of the kingdom can only be found through the salvation that comes in our relationship with him as we accept him as our Lord and as our Savior and as we come to feed at the banquet feast of a relationship with him. The reality is we will not find joy in the kingdom of God when we seek to pursue our own needs first. Rather, in counterintuitive ways, Jesus says we discover the joy of the kingdom when we humble ourselves and look to the needs of others first. Our human nature tempts us to believe that these are mutually exclusive propositions, that you can only do one or the other, and that there are winners and that there are losers, and so we need to look out for number one first. But this attitude blinds us to the unexpected reality is that if we seek first the kingdom of God and to be used by God to be a blessing to those around us, we we discover that the kingdom of God exists in our own hearts. It's not somewhere out there, but it's somewhere in here. And that the very things that we most need to overcome our sorrow and our pain and our grief which are all things that God knows we need, he will, be, he will add those things to us as well when we become part of being a blessing of the banquet feast for others. So there's three quick takeaways that I want to have us look at. There's lots of things that we can look at in the parables of Jesus, but for us in this series, as we walk the way of Jesus, I want to suggest three things for us today. As with each of the pathways in the way of Jesus, the first one is that joy is not something that we can earn or manufacture. Joy is not something that you can create on your own. 
There's nothing that you can do that, that's going to make you more joyful. You can't, like, work yourself up to it. <laughs> Joy is discovered as a gift from God when we say yes to Jesus' invitation to come to the banquet feast that he's prepared. Like each of the outcomes of the way of Jesus, joy is discovered as we come to a greater knowledge and a response to the love of God that is revealed to us in Jesus, in us and for us, because it's the love and the grace of Jesus that brings that healing to those places of sorrow and pain that we've been carrying for so long. And that we've been looking through all the different ways that this world offers to try and alleviate that pain, to overcome that sorrow, and to somehow find that elusive happiness that, that our American culture says is the, is the ultimate goal of American living, right? The pursuit of happiness. And yet we keep coming up short over and over and over again. Joy is discovered in our relationship with Jesus as Jesus' love becomes the healing balm for our suffering and for our pain. And as we discover the freedom and the joy of living in the kingdom of God comes as a gift of being in relationship with God. Israel thought that History and heritage was enough to be included in God's chosen people. Uh, and many of us who've grown up in the church and have been a part of the church for a long time may not intentionally be thinking this way, but we have fallen victim into this thinking that, that because of our history and because of our heritage, we're, we're kind of already in the in crowd and we've got our ticket to heaven and we know we're going to go to the feast someday when the kingdom of God comes. And so we're, we're, we're comfortable just living with our discomfort now because we know someday God's going to make it all better. But Jesus says it's not simply enough to be on the invite list and to have submitted your RSVP. Those who ultimately who are included are the ones who show up to the party. Kingdom, the kingdom feast is, is the meal that Jesus provides where he is the host and those who are included are the ones who are identified by their connection to Jesus and their abiding relationship with him. That's what we spent our time doing this last week in our 50-day challenge is living with the abiding prayer, reminding us that every day, in every way, it's our connection to Jesus and abiding with him through the power of his spirit that keeps us at the table. Which leads us to the second takeaway that we learn from Jesus in this parable, and that's that the banquet feast of God is ready. The banquet feast is ready now. It's available. The doors are open. The invitations have been sent. The servants are out screaming, come on in. Even now, people can begin to respond and come to the party and experience the food that God has prepared for us that brings renewal and restoration and energy to our spirits and our souls. But many of us are too busy with work and possessions and family to take the time to respond to Jesus' invitation and to come to the party. And it begs the question, what could possibly be so important in our minds about the daily affairs of life in this world that they would keep us from coming to God's celebration party. 
Because you see, to fail to respond to the invitation is to miss out on the food that's been prepared, the meal that he's provided. It can be tempting to think that we need to have our lives fully in order before we can experience the joy of God's kingdom in our lives. And so we give ourselves to, to all of these activities and all of these things that we need to do to think that we have to put our lives in order and we have to make ourselves happy and we have to keep everyone around us happy. All the while, we're missing the very point that God's kingdom is available now. Jesus tells us all is ready. And even though some will reject the invitation because of what God has already accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the call continues to go out through the master's servants to the highways and the byways, compelling anyone who would come to come and feast because the party is happening today. Even when life is difficult and even when life feels like it's not all that we would hope it would be, we can look to the words of uh, the psalmist David in Psalm 23 where we realize, you prepare a table before me in the very presence of my enemies. God doesn't even wait for all the enemies to go away. He's like, I'll feed you right in the middle of where you're at. Don't focus on the challenges. Don't focus on the obstacles. Don't focus on the people who want to bring you down. Keep your eyes on me because I've got a table prepared for you now in this moment. You can come and you can eat and you can drink and you can be restored and you can find joy in the middle of life even when it's hard. He says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. You see, brothers and sisters, the good news message of Jesus is that in Jesus, the party has already started. And if you aren't coming to the table and feasting on the food that the master has prepared, you're actually missing the party. That's what we celebrate in communion, right? When we come and we take the Lord's Supper, it's a recognition of this celebratory reality that the kingdom of God has come, that the party has already started, that God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. That's a, it's Pentecost Sunday, right? That's what Pentecost Sunday celebrates, is that, that through the Holy Spirit, God has come to make his kingdom with us Every day, in every way, the party is now and we can come and we can feed on the food that God has provided, which is the only thing that will bring us true joy. And so the joy of living in the kingdom of God is both a present and a future reality, the Bible tells us. But when the realization dawns on us that the feast that we hope for one day, that we celebrate is a promise of fulfillment at the end of history, is available for us to begin experiencing now, the excitement and the joy that accompanies that realization leads to a complete reprioritization of the values of our lives. And it leads to a new understanding of where the joy of being alive in this world can be found. Too often we're missing the joy of the kingdom because we've allowed ourselves to become distracted with the things of this world. And we've made other things greater priorities than what we know the Bible has told us to be true about our relationship with God. We seek to alleviate our pain and our sorrow through many of the things that bring temporary relief, relief but they never truly satisfy our souls. In many ways, I, I would suggest to us through this parable that Jesus tells us that we can become habitual spiritual procrastinators. 
And I think if I had to pick a label for myself, that would probably be it. I am a habitual spiritual procrastinator. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that the kingdom of God is already here. I know that. I know that the healing and forgiveness is already available to, through Jesus. Kurt, you're not telling me anything new. I've grown up in the church. I know all these truths. I've studied the Bible. I know this is true. I know that even in times of difficulty and challenge that the joy of the Lord is my strength. I know these things, but you don't understand. I've got a lot going on right now. I got a lot that requires my time and my attention, and you don't understand the, the weight of the concerns that I carry in my life. I've got work that needs doing. I've got deadlines that are looming. I've got home projects that have piled up that I can't get to. I've got family relationships that are cracking at the seams and falling apart. And on top of all that, I've got my wish list too of all the things that someday I'm going to do and all the places that I'm going to go. And someday when I can be blessed to retire, I'm going to do all those things. I know, I know, Kurt, I know. One day when Jesus comes back, he's going to take away all this stress and all this anxiety and all this pressure in life. I know that's the hope of the kingdom. And that in that time, I'll be able to experience God's peace and his rest and all these promises. That's the, that's the hope of the eternal reward, right? I know. I believe all these things. And I know that one day, it's going to happen. No. 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 Jesus says the kingdom of God is now. Don't blink because you might miss it. The kingdom of God is ready. He's been preparing it from before the creation of the world. All you have to do is come to the table to eat this bread and to drink this wine that he's provided which is healing for your soul and, a, and a, a joy to overcome your sorrow. It, it's the experience of being alive and being whole today. Not tomorrow, not next year, not someday when we die and, and go to be in the by and by. Now, this is the day of salvation. The kingdom of God comes with limitless grace and love, but it also comes with the expectation that we have to let go of everything else that may exalt itself in our lives against the knowledge of God. And that knowledge is not informational knowledge, it's relational knowledge. What more tragic words would, could ever be spoken than what Jesus said, someday in the sweet by and by, many will come to me and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, did we not minister to people in your name? Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And, the, and he will say, depart from me because what? I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, that is the core of the gospel message. That is the core of what Christianity all, is all about. We have the possibility of knowing God in Jesus, and there is nothing else that our souls need to overcome the brokenness of sin and evil in this world and all of the sorrow and the pain and the shame that we each carry today, and we're all carrying it. 
That's why Jesus came. And because Jesus is alive, the party has already begun. And all we got to do is come and feast at the table. The kingdom of God comes with the eternal promise that one day God will restore and reconcile all things. But it also comes with the invitation and the expectation that we enter into and begin to live out of that kingdom right now, today. Really quickly, I have one more takeaway that I want to get us through. And number three is that the banquet feast that overcomes our sorrow with joy is our relationship with Jesus. It's really that simple, but it's really that challenging. In John 6, Jesus talks about the bread that comes down from heaven. And in verse 55, he says, Is not my body real food and my blood real drink? On Pentecost Sunday, when uh, he gifted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ was poured out into our hearts as the great banquet feast of the kingdom of God, beginning with each one of us, anything else that we pursue to alleviate our pain and overcome our sorrow is only counterfeit joy. There is nothing else. It's Jesus plus nothing. (laughs) Helen Shapiro, in her book, Christ-Shaped Character, said, Jesus came so that we may have life and have it abundantly, he says in John 10.10. 10. This life is the, to the full is given to us in Christ in the circumstances of our daily human lives. Everyone has enough time and money, enough personality and gifts, enough intelligence and intuition to be blessed with an abundant life. Because abundance comes, not out of the, abundance comes out of the recognition that in Christ we already have enough. There is nothing more that we need. Salvation is itself the redemption of the image of God in us that has been obscured by sin, alienation, and separation. It is not something we achieve, but the grace of a new life that is closer to the life the Creator intended from the beginning. And so in this way, the way of Jesus becomes the way of joy. As we enter into a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, we find that the character of Christ begins to form in us when we understand that he calls us to to feed and to feast on his spirit, on his love and his grace and his character so so that we, we realize that it's true in Christianity, it's true in our faith as it is in the world, that you are what you eat. And we discover that the way of Jesus is the way of love, and it's the way of compassion, and it's the way of forgiveness, and it's the way of desire, and it's the way of weakness, and it's the way of integrity, and it's the way of joy. Because we understand that the kingdom of God is a party, and everyone's invited, and the party has already started. I want to close with a question. Do you remember the reward for the faithful servants in the parable of the talents, which is one of the ones we didn't do in this series? Right? The commendation was, well done, good and faithful servant. And what's the reward? Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, joy is the reward for coming to the banquet feast and feasting on your relationship with Jesus and allowing his spirit and his character to be the one that guides and directs your life and mine. Let's pray. 
God, on this Pentecost Sunday, we ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit on each one of us and upon our church. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to understand that the kingdom of God is present among us and that the banquet feast has already begun and all that we need to do is put away our distractions and give up our excuses and come and sit at table with Jesus and feed on the food that only he can provide. God, forgive us for the ways that we have sought to control our own lives or to seek happiness or alleviating our pain in many unhealthy and different ways that never satisfy. And God, give us the courage to lean into one another in this season ahead, to encourage one another towards love and good deeds and all the more as we see that day approaching. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.